Good news, smoked beer fans. The official glass of This Week in Rauk Beer is now back in stock on our website. Visit beeredge.com slash merch to get yours today. And be sure to join This Week in Rauk Beer on Facebook or follow at TW Rauk Beer on Twitter and Instagram. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. Haze might be popular, but the clear, vibrant, and assertive West Coast IPA still has a lot of life left in it. And holding that torch high is Julian Trago of Beachwood Brewing in California. He's here to talk about hops and creativity, mixed culture, and the importance of being small and independent. But first, we're able to bring you this show each week. Thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you'd like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to sponsor at beeredge.com and be sure to check out Stomp Stickers. Stomp is a proud member of the Brewers Association that produces a wide variety of printed brewery products, such as beer labels, keg collars, coasters, beer boxes, and much more. Stomp's website features an easy-to-use design tool, low-quantity orders, fast turnaround times, and free domestic shipping. Visit stompstickers.com and use code CRAFTBEER15 for 15% off your first order. Athletic Brewing Company's innovative process allows them to brew great-tasting craft beer without the alcohol. From IPAs to stouts to gold nails and more, they offer a full selection of beers starting at only 50 calories. Now you can keep your head clear and enjoy the refreshing taste of beer anytime, anywhere. Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. New customers can also get 10% off of their entire order with the code BEEREDGE10, limit one per customer. Anenzi Hops is a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. Julian Trago is the co-founder and brewmaster of Beachwood Brewing, which already boasts several locations in Southern California with more on the way. He's a thoughtful brewer, one who takes big ideas and brings them down to a manageable level that are executed well. And in my interactions with him over the years at festivals, at the brewery, and just in the wild, I've always been struck by his thoughtful nature and his commitment to small brewers, traditional styles, and education. On the show this week, he joins me from the brewery, where we talk about the evolution and the importance of West Coast IPAs, conveying the importance of being a small brewer to the world at large, musical influence, and how to best manage growth. Here's our conversation. I'm sure you like all beer, but does your passion burn just a little bit brighter for one style of beer above all others? I don't know that it it does necessarily, uh, but I certainly have an affinity for traditional styles and traditional styles are really kind of the foundation from which nearly all other modern beers and, and new emerging styles are derived. Uh, and, and this kind of goes back to my, probably the, the best guitar teacher that I had growing up. And when I went to him as a, as a young teenager, I said, Hey man, I just want you to teach me how to shred. He's like, eh, we'll, we'll get to that, but you got to earn it. And he said, Julian, you can't, you can't shred unless you learn the seven major modes, like those scales and the chords that go along with those scales are the foundation for like almost everything in rock and roll and heavy metal. If you master those seven things, then you can learn to play jazz, then you can improvise, and then you can do all these other sort of things. And that really resonated with me. And that philosophy kind of stuck with me through, through brewing too. And not just with the beers that I brew, but with beers that I, I enjoy and styles that I choose to understand and research and make sure I respect the history of. 
is there a good example of the basics that then led you to to shred on a particular beer learning the basics of a beer and then <laughs> sure uh so um let's talk let's talk india pale ale ipa and i good. think it was that gonna was come a, up at some point yeah it was of course it was gonna come up because <laughs> that inevitable. is that's the cornerstone of, of Beachwood's uh, production is IPA. And we are still really predominantly a West Coast IPA brewery. Mm-hmm. And West Coast IPA was an emerging thing when I got into craft beer in the, uh, the mid-90s. It was something that was new. And it wasn't even a, a term that was defined yet. But um, West Coast IPA specifically would be one of those things where you need to have a historic understanding of where IPA came from as a style and how it's evolved. And a lot of, a lot of where West coast IPA is today is, you know, it's a, it's a regionally defined thing, but it continues to be shaped by new hop varietals that come out. Uh, there's some cross pollination now that's happening with, um, new England style IPAs and certain aspects of those beers that are now in turn influencing West coast IPA. So I think, uh, kind of getting back to your original question, yeah. um, yeah, there, there's a, an example of a modern style that still is defined and also evolving, but to really understand it, you also need to have respect for the history that came before it. I was doing just a quick count before we started and at least at your Gosh, where am I? Your Long Beach location. Yeah. Uh, I think I counted on draft nine West Coast IPAs, one pale ale, uh, and then <laughs> just one hazy IPA, uh, 28 Haze later, which which I've had and uh, I've enjoyed. It, it, it's There's sensibilities to that beer um, and there's thought to that beer. And I know Haze is still sort of running the conversation these mm-hmm. days. Um, but did the, and, and you just said sort of, you know, the, the East coast, um, uh, beers uh, merging into the West coast sensibilities kind of thing, mm-hmm. but were you able to apply West coast sensibilities to your East coast IPA to your hazy IPA? I, I don't know that we do because the examples that I've enjoyed the most and the examples that have influenced, uh, 28 haze later. Uh, the most um, are are ones that I think are pretty different from West Coast IPAs. There are certain hop varietals that I really love in West Coast IPA that I don't tend to like. This is out of personal preference. Okay. So um, I tend to like really fruity varietals only in hazy IPA. Um, I don't really like much sustained bitterness in a New England IPA. I don't tend to like any kind of uh, sulfate driven edge. Whereas uh, with a West Coast IPA, um, there is some kind of influence from New England uh, in that we might reduce bitterness and emphasize more hop flavor and aroma than we might have in the past, where we might have had a uh, sharper bitterness, a firmer bitterness. We may not do that as much in our more modern IPAs. So it tends to, the influence and crossover kind of tends to go one direction with at least Beechwood Spears. So I, I wouldn't say we're really applying any West Coast techniques to our New England style beers, but we are applying a little bit of New England influence to some of our West Coast beers. Admittedly, I haven't traveled much in the last two years, but uh, seeing nine different west coast ipas on a menu um, mm-hmm. got me really excited and really intrigued and there's obviously consumer demand for that variety within the style i i would imagine yeah there definitely is and especially with people who come to beachwood we're known for being a west coast ipa brewery we always have been it's probably the largest part of our our fabric when it comes to brewing and I think our beers have a certain, they definitely have a certain unique Beachwood identity. I could, I could tell you what that define, you know, how that's defined from my perspective, yeah, but love to know. all the, uh, all of those West coast IPAs that are on tap are 
definitively Beechwood, definitively West Coast, but also easy to differentiate from one another. And so with, with Beechwood, um, at least with, with how my approach is to brewing West Coast IPA, uh, I like my beers to be really dry. I like them to have little to no specialty malt in them. I like them to have a firm bitterness uh, and a lot of hop flavor and quite a bit of hop aroma. And that aroma can range from super piney, very old school Columbus, all the way through something very modern and fruity like Strata or Mosaic. Yeah. And, uh, and, and everything in between too. And there are even some new hop products and hopping techniques and hop varietals that we've, um, we've incorporated that, that have changed the beers too, that have created flavors and aromas that nobody's ever experienced in beer before. And we just recently uh, released a, a West Coast IPA called Hop Tangle. And it was a really pretty straightforward West Coast IPA recipe. It was only two row malt in the base, no specialty malt, malt at all. And then we dry hopped it with uh, quite a few newer varietals. And uh, that was Idaho 7, Right. Laurel and Pato. And two of those varietals that are in the dry hop are not really advertised as IPA hops. Laurel is a newer varietal that tends to be somewhat fruity, but the, uh, the people who originally bred it thought that it would be best used as kind of like a gentle hop for lagers, oh. but it has a really tremendous aroma. And then Pato is a yeah, I'm really not familiar with that at all. So that's a new varietal that was originally bred for basically its bittering potential and it has very dense growth per acre. And that varietal was primarily grown and designed to make bittering extract. How do we get the most like potential IBUs per acre? And that's what that hop was, was originally designed for. And that's primarily what it's bred for, but I think it has a tremendous aroma it's very powerful it's really like sticky indica dank bong resin <laughs> and um when we i we started adding that just in in small volumes to some of the dry hops on on some of our one-off ipas and we found that we really liked the power of it the potency the aromatic impact and then with this new beer hop tangle uh you've got a cool fruity component from the idaho seven You've got more kind of fruit cup coming from the laurel. And then you've got this really unique, dank, sappy resin component coming from Pato. And it was uh, just kind of an aroma and flavor combination that I'd never quite experienced in a West Coast IPA. And so when my brewers and I tasted the final beer, we said, okay, this is clearly a Beechwood IPA. People will drink this and know that this is a Beechwood IPA, but it's got really cool flavors and aromas combined that we hadn't quite experienced before. So everybody's thinking about this beer and picking it apart. And it's a really cool experience to, to be able to create that. There's some sort of music analogy that I can't quite figure out uh, as quickly as I would like, but when mm -hmm. a hop, when a hop grower is saying, okay, um, this is something that we think would go really nice for lockers. I'm imagining that the majority of people, brewers who get their hands on that, will then just use it for lagers. Uh, the fact that you're smelling it, tasting it, um, and then going to IPA and, and then putting it into an IPA, mm -hmm. um, is that just coloring outside of the lines or thinking outside of the box? Or is that just, is that part of the identity of the beers as well of don't tell me what to do? I know. Well, I'm not I, sure I don't know. There's, is it punk? Is it, I, there's yeah, not necessarily I, a rebellious spirit to it, but <laughs> one thing that we, we do enjoy at Beachwood, one thing that fuels our fire for sure is having creative autonomy, being able to brew whatever we want, whenever we want and looking at a new hop varietal and saying, Hey, I, I'm really curious to see what this will do for us in, in an IPA. I'm really curious to see if this hop can perform in ways maybe that uh, the grower hadn't anticipated and maybe we can turn other breweries on to using this hop. Maybe we can have some influence with it. A common thing that I hear 
from brewers, especially like the the really small ones, they'll I, they'll say, you know, boy, I really wish that I could be uh, making X style all the time because it's 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 what I love, it's what it's what I care about. Um, mm-hmm. But hazies pay the bills, so I'm just going to keep cranking out hazies. Um, when when you're saying that you have the autonomy to you know make the beers that 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 you want to make. Um, it, is that do you think that's translatable throughout the industry or are you sitting in a special place well i think beechwood is in a fortunate position because our two flagship beers um are two west coast ipas that's amalgamator and citraholic and those are some of our favorite beers to brew and drink but those are also the two beers that pay most of the bills um and i say we get to do whatever we want whenever we want um, because we, we have this experimental brew pub, we've got, we've got our production facility in, in Huntington beach, which produces roughly 80% of, of all of Beachwood's beer and where essentially all the canning takes place. And then we have our original brew pub in long beach, which is a smaller system. We have a huge host of fermenters there and we're always able to do one-off experimental type beers or traditional styles. And we can do it um, without any kind of negative consequence, because those batches of beer are small enough that we can serve the majority of them over our own bars. And the small amount that is left over for draft will go to some key accounts and and kind of tastemaker bars in our region. Gotcha. So we're not, we don't have to worry like, oh, like I want to brew this. I want to brew a traditional German Schwartz beer, but my smallest batch size is 50 barrels. Like how am I going to sell 50 barrels of Schwartz beer? Oh, I guess I'm not going to brew a Schwartz beer. So um, we, we have the ability of doing small batches. And, and so that that's what affords us the ability to experiment And the same thing with Beachwood Blendery too. We have those same small batches that we're able to do a lot of experimentation there too. But certainly there are breweries that, um, do certain styles and may not have the same kind of scale adjustment that that a brewery like Beechwood has, or maybe even Russian River or Sierra Nevada. You know, Sierra Nevada is obviously a massive brewery, but they've got a pilot brewery, a really cool pilot brewery at each of their production facilities. So they can do they can do whatever they want whenever they want as well. Yeah. Before they commit to brewing tens of thousands of barrels of a beer that they're bringing to market. But it would have, you know, everybody has to pay the bills. And at the end of the day, everybody is running a business and they want it to be sustainable. And some businesses are more subject to those market forces than others. I think it's unique to each brewery. Could there be a day in Beachwood's future where those IPAs number uh, those IPA numbers flip and suddenly it's nine hazies and one West coast. Possibly, but we haven't like the indicators haven't pointed that way. And in fact, we, we've kind of seen uh, there's definitely, there would appear to be a permanent seat at the table for 28 haze later and occasionally some uh, one-off hazy IPAs, but most of our consumers seem to really be wanting the West coast stuff. And the majority of our beer is sold in three counties right around Beachwood, uh, Los Angeles County, Orange County, and San Diego County. And I see those three counties still predominantly wanting West Coast style IPA. And uh, could things change? Possibly. Um, But we were brewing more hazy IPA, or sorry, more, more we were brewing a, a wider range of hazy IPAs last year and the year before than, than we are now. Our total volume of hazy IPA is, is up, but it's really all focused on 28 days later. And that's, I know a lot of places have had success with a single brand of mm-hmm. hazy IPA, but then there's also the sort of, you know, the ticker mindset or, um, oh, I had this one where, you know, you added the citra first and then the mosaic. How about one where the mosaic comes first and then the citra, um, that kind of thing. Um, are the fans of 28 Haze Later, are they looking for more from you or are, are, are they 
happy with with the one you know much like you are with like other styles like if somebody makes a really good porter you're just going to keep drinking the porter and not saying like well what new porter do you have they seem to be content with 28 haze later um that's a beer that we produce a couple times a month and it goes out usually in equal volumes of draft and then cans and the way that at least we've set up distribution for that beer it's it's one that people enjoy regularly and one that they like to be able to come back to. They want it to be dependable and, and consistent. And that seems to work for them. And also in Los Angeles, there are a whole host of boutique breweries and you know smaller breweries that do a lot of one-off hazy IPAs and do them really well. So I think perhaps because it's it's driven by my local market is that Beechwood has become the one that's available year round. And when people want to kind of try something maybe different with Hazy IPA, they'll go to another local brewery. One of the big selling points of craft independence, whatever word we're using at, at any particular moment though, um, has been community. And it's been mm -hmm. a sense of place and it's been the, um, the ways that small businesses connect with their consumers. And I know the last two years have been especially trying for that with you know, curbside and to go. And, um, you know, I know in California, you all have gone through various lockdowns and restrictions and, and everything else, maybe more so than anybody else. Um, how has it been maintaining that connection that culture well i think one of the one of the key pieces to that is our brew pub in downtown long beach which is a very diverse area it's very well integrated and uh my wife and i lived in long beach for roughly eight years it's a very very cool dynamic community and uh, it's, I, it's a place where a lot of people like to visit and we're happy to be part of that community. And we're happy to do a lot of local events. Um, we're, we're proud to be in the city of Long Beach. We brew a beer year round called LBC IPA. And that's one that essentially is only distributed in the city of Long Beach. Rarely does it go outside of Long Beach. But uh, Long Beach as a city has been very supportive, not just the citizenry, but also the government as well. The city has done some really, really cool supportive favors for Beachwood over the years. And um, I think that that sense of community is, is really well seated with Beachwood. With, with so many different locations, though, right, um, mm -hmm. that, that you have, is it? the Beachwood community and then people find their way to you or with all the different locations, do they take on a feeling of the place and sort of adapt to where they are? I think it's both. And we have locations that are in, in several different areas between Los Angeles County and Orange County currently. And each of those areas is a little bit different, but uh, I, I think the people that come to Beachwood do feel that that we are we're well seated in the community wherever we are and we have really I, I we we spend a lot of time on uh really good customer service to make sure that when people come to beachwood they identify with the brewery they identify with service the culture and they also identify that with a location and i am i'm you know happy to say that each of our locations is different but they all feel like Beechwood. And I think our customers feel that they are tied in well with the community. When you're talking about customer customer service and that and and, and that relationship, mm -hmm. it, I imagine it's got to be a little tough with a growing number of locations to maintain that. Right. I mean, like I think about like McDonald's, right? McDonald's feels like McDonald's feels like McDonald's, but there's still uh you know, good ones and bad ones, uh, you know, based on the folks that are there and the larger that you get, like uh, the, the harder it is to um, maintain that. And I know McDonald's is probably not the best example, but um, have you been it, thinking about that as you've been adding new places of like, how do you retain 
what you want Beachwood to be as it continues to grow? Of course, because, you know, to kind of draw on your, your analogy to McDonald's, that that's a very, <laughs> I'm going to go with it, even though you said it might not be the best, but McDonald's and, and maybe businesses like that are very mechanically driven. They have a determinate structure. They have a, like a very written kind of almost scientific operating procedure for, for how those places are run. And certainly their food is very, very mechanically produced. Yes. That's not to say it's, it's bad, but you know, you have to run things differently there. And as Beachwood continues to expand its enterprise, yeah, that's one thing you think about is how are we going to maintain our same level of customer service and how are we going to maintain the same culture across the company? Well, one of the things that we're able to do is make sure we cross-train a lot of our employees so that they can work between locations. And also not expand so fast that you aren't able as, as an owner to touch on each business location. So, you know, if, if, if we wanted to, we could probably open a more remote location. But, uh, you know, my business partner, Gabe, and I would, would have to touch on that location fairly frequently if we wanted to ensure that the foundation was aligned with Beachwood's culture and, and forward-facing customer service. So I think not expanding too fast is something that is definitely a thing that we think about. And also, you know, hey, once, we, once we're getting ready to open a new location, the first thing we've got to do is make sure that the hospitality is buttoned up. Customers and fans need to feel like they're taken care of. They need to feel like they're heard if their experience isn't optimal. And we need to make sure that that that's the first thing that our staff understand is serve the customer, educate the customer, and therefore empower the customer that they don't just want to come back, but they, that they know by coming back, they're making a good decision. Is there a limit to growth? Uh, is there a limit to growth? It depends on what your objective is. I, I, I think for some people, there is no, there is no limit to growth. We've, we've all seen that. And just living in a capitalistic society, we've seen companies that have gotten huge and continue to get bigger with no end in sight. But for a company like Beachwood, um, there, there is kind of a target that I have in mind. And ideally, I would like to grow Beachwood to the point of where it can afford endless resources. And I'll kind of go back a little bit with that. And one thing that I've learned is, as Beachwood has expanded and grown is I've been able to hire some really, really good help over the years. People that have been able to take some things off my plate to kind of ease my workload. And then I'm able to focus on things that I may never have even noticed before or didn't realize that I was missing. And so I would like to grow Beachwood to the point, my ultimate goal would be to grow Beachwood to the point where everybody who works for Beachwood only does things that they're super passionate about and nobody is bogged down with tedium. Wow. Is that an achievable goal? I think so. I feel like I've seen it at at certain companies before and I'm, you know, at, at company X, that may be getting to 50 employees and then you've got a very sustainable business where, you know, everybody is happy and productive doing what they're doing. And at business Y, that may mean getting to a thousand employees and being a global enterprise. So it depends on each company, but I can certainly think of examples where people are, you know, overall very happy and productive where people are able to maximize their job efficiency and job satisfaction. I think Sierra Nevada is a really shining example of that. I, I'm just thinking, I, I've i talked to brewers who and, and brewery employees, and there's some folks who just like to do one thing and, and, and stick with it. Um, and then, you know, there's folks who like to bounce around and, you know, have their hands in, in, in a bunch of different things. Um, when you're saying find people who, you know, enjoy what they're doing without the tedium. Uh, I'm wondering, and I, maybe you have a, 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 you know, a machine for this, but like, Mm -hmm. is there somebody who just wants to be a keg washer? There might be, or there might be somebody who, 
who uh, you might eventually have a team that is happy to share that responsibility because then yeah. it means everybody else can be afforded time to do other things that, that they feel are less tedious. You've been big on encouraging your employees to follow passions um, and to get outside of the brew house to, 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 to follow those passions, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What have you seen as the, I mean, there's got to be a, a personal and a spiritual benefit uh, for each individual, you know, out of that. Are there larger touchstones to that as well? Uh, well, for, I, I think a lot of, a lot of my staff, um, some of that comes from doing collaborations with other breweries where they get to take control of the creative process. They get to work with somebody else. They can maybe offer some points of wisdom from a Beechwood perspective, and they can intake other points of wisdom from the collaborating brewery. And so I think that gives people an opportunity to contribute and feel like they're doing something valuable outside of just, you know, like, oh, I got to, I got to brew this beer again. I got to clean this tank again. I have to do the same thing over again. Uh, but, but ultimately, um, I, you know, I, I think I would like people to be influenced and, and maybe volunteer some of their time working for trade organizations. I think, uh, I don't think success happens in a vacuum. And I think whether you are depending on help from really good supportive staff, or you're depending on a trade organization or just an industry in general to kind of help you along the way. I think everybody has a duty to give back and not be a passive beneficiary. And so, you know, I've always encouraged people to volunteer for organizations like the Brewers Association, or even volunteer judging at a local beer festival. That's something helpful and beneficial that you can do that gives back to the community that supports you. Are there, is there like a good, I mean, I, I want to stay on this, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious as to like, somebody comes in on a Monday morning and says, Hey, this is what I did over the weekend kind of thing. Is, is there an example that sort of stands out in your mind that humanizes that, that sentiment? Well, I mean, everybody, everybody is different uh, in terms of, of how they spend their spare time. But I, I, I think um, people are probably probably feel best and I when when they do something with their spare time that's that's rewarding that was when they whether they have a, a hobby or some other kind of passion that challenges them and that rewards them and it, it is not at all related to their day job uh, those are the things that I I love to hear about but I also think those are the things that that people like to share like hey let me tell you about something I did over the weekend it has nothing to do with beer and I had to create the structure on my own and it gave me a sense of accomplishment. And I did this really cool thing over the weekend. More in just a moment. But first, thanks to these companies who support Drink Beer, Think Beer and help keep it on the air. Stomp Stickers is a reliable resource for printed items such as beer labels and boxes, keg collars, coasters, and more. Visit stompstickers.com and use code craftbeer15 for 15% off your first order. Athletic Brewing Company's innovative process allows them to brew great-tasting craft beer without the alcohol. Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. New customers can also get 10% off of their entire order with code BEEREDGE10, limit one per customer. And NZ Hops. It's a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years to produce some of the world's finest hops. NZ hops are like no others, unique in their flavors and aromas. Visit nzhops.co.nz to explore more. And now, back to the conversation. The notion of independence comes up quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to, 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 to beer, which I think has been, uh, beating the drum pretty loudly. And there's always been this sort of American ideal of mom and pop shops and main streets and, uh, and all of that. And then people just kind of go and, um, order from Amazon or pick up a six pack of butt or, or, or whatever. Um, how have you 
being in all these locations, um, mm-hmm. being as involved in in Southern California as you are, um, how has the 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 notion and the conversation around independence evolved over the last decade or so? And do you have any sort of sense as to where it might be headed? Uh, I think uh, you know this is this is an interesting question, and I. I've spent I've spent some time thinking about it recently because I think you and I can both agree that craft, when it came to like what does that word mean when it comes to beer? I think it was one of these slightly nebulous things that people knew it when they saw it, but they couldn't really define it. Yeah. And slowly but surely the meaning of craft, whatever it was, was eroded. And now it's really kind of an ambiguous statement. I think when independent was first applied to beer, I think it had a fairly clean and crisp definition. I think it meant not big beer, but now it seems to come down to the money. Like where does the money come from? Where does the ownership of the brewery come from? So for me, um, what does it mean to be independent? I think it has, it pro- to me, it probably has less to do with uh, maybe the money source behind the brewery. And it has a lot more to do with who actually controls the direction of the brewery and what's their intent. So for example, Beachwood has a group of investors and they, you know, they, they are essentially, uh, they, they totally back Beachwood's vision and they contribute, uh, you know, some opinions from time to time, but my business partner, Gabe, and I really steer the, the total direction of the company. So we're independent. There's no, there's no money influencing our decisions. There's no uh, kind of debt looming over us you know, where, where somebody is able to, to reclaim that debt and maybe exert pressure on some decisions that we make. So you could get investment capital from anywhere, whether that's from a bank, a group of investors, private equity, your parents, whatever. But it really comes down to what kind of influence does that that money come with? And are you beholden to that influence? If you're not, then you're independent. You know, if you have a if you have a uh, a group of investors or private equity coming to you and saying, hey, I know you like brewing all these different types of beers, but guess what? Seltzer's the future. So you're not brewing beer anymore. You're only brewing seltzer. Well, then you're not really independent. Is the nature though, because it's ultimately consumer dollars, um, is the conversation still raging on of, you know, hey, you're helping us and you're helping the communities and you're helping ourselves? Like, is that is that resonating, do you think, in the way that people or business, a small business or independent business owners want it to resonate? Oh, you mean in terms of, um, hey, fans and, and, and customers, if you come support my brewery, you're doing something good and you're doing yeah. something to benefit. I think that does resonate. I think, I think the more challenging message to get across to people is that without small business, you don't have innovation. Without innovation, you have monotony. And historically, with beer, I'll kind of point to the post-prohibition era, era, that for decades, you had literally a handful of breweries across the United States that were producing pale lager. That was it for decades. There was no competition. There were no small breweries. There was no real reason for them to innovate or change their product. Everything was status quo. And if you look at... um, all the emerging styles and, and really popular styles today, almost all of those started at small independent breweries. You know, the, uh, the, the amount of, of uh, large breweries now that are producing hazy IPA, they wouldn't have arrived there if it hadn't been for small boutique breweries popularizing a style. So if you want innovation, if you want variety, if you want life to be interesting, <laughs> Just whatever it is, whether you're consuming beer or music or food or consumer products, you should support small independent businesses whenever possible, because you're you're not going to have anything interesting in the long run if you don't. Yeah, I, I I like that in the context of right before we went on, we were talking about a new 
location that you're opening up on the on the waterfront. Um, and you mentioned that Whole Foods is an anchor tenant and that there's going to be an Apple store there as well. Um, two companies which are about as far from independent as as it gets. Um, but you're going to be right there in the in the in the thick of that uh, in, mm-hmm. in, the, in that development. Um, is that a chance to bring this conversation back up to the forefront? Um, possibly because you're you're saying because you have a mix of very yeah. giant global companies amongst uh, smaller, truly independent, very local businesses. Yes. Um, I mean, it could have been very easy to put a, I, you know, I don't know, a McDonald's. I, I'm just going to keep going back to that because sure, I'm not creative sure. today. But like, you know, one <laughs> sure. of the fa- one of the fancy ones that looks at home, like next to an Apple, an Apple store. You could have, and I think, <laughs> I think that goes. I, I think that might speak to the uh, the I the notion that a lot of these businesses, big and small, can actually coexist and benefit each other and not cannibalize each other. But we need to make a conscious effort to support those smaller businesses so that they can exist amongst the giants. They certainly can. There absolutely can be a coexistence and I think a mutual benefit to it. But that I, I think that is something that more has to be forced by the small business or there needs to be more effort put in by the small business and there needs to be an awareness on the consumer side. And it's, I mean, it's talking to developers and making them aware. And then I also imagine local governments as well um, who are trying to entice business growth and the ones offering permits and, 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 and things like that. Like it's not just a, it's not just enough for a, a small business to be out there saying, Hey, we're here. Um, there has to be like a proactive approach. Right. Or and there's certainly be. benefits yeah. that come from having large businesses there. It's not, it's not all bad. I mean, a, a large business may be able to come in and say, Hey, there's this huge plot of land that needs to, that should be redeveloped, but it's going to cost a lot of money. Maybe let's just say to remediate the soil. Like there's some soil contamination that needs to be taken care of. How about we pay for that? And maybe you grease the skids on our architectural plans, but it will benefit this area as a total because then we can build out this huge area. Lots of stores can go in, uh, large businesses that have steady cash flow and are able to employ lots of people who live locally, small businesses where people can who live locally can feel like they're supporting something positive and, and uh, innovative. And so I think. I think larger businesses can absolutely be a benefit to smaller businesses, but it's also very easy for large businesses to make decisions that, that can really be to the detriment of small businesses and obliterate small businesses. I want to change topics with you if that's all right. Sure. Uh, sure. When, when did the blendery open? Blendery, uh, Blendery opened, geez, when was this a memory test right now? I believe <laughs> it was, uh, I believe it was sometime around 20, shoot, when did we first start? Or, I believe it was 2013 or 2014. I can't believe okay. I'm not remembering the exact date. But. So I'm having a tough time remembering. So I yep. visited and I was hanging out with you right before it opened. Mm-hmm. Um. And, you know, we were talking about wood and, and, and all that, but I can't find notes or I just couldn't find anything in my, my various files of like the actual visit. But like, I know I was there with you right before it opened. Um, I believe, so I believe it I'm was glad 20. that your memory is as good as mine. <laughs> I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say that I don't quite remember the day, but I, I believe it was in uh, December of uh, 2013 that we first started brewing uh, beers for Blendery. It was a little, it was some time yeah. before they were ready, but we started brewing beer at the end of 2013. All right. So let's just go with that then. Um, sure. How have those beers evolved in now the, what, eight years? Since? Well, yeah, quite a bit. And <laughs> when we went, when we, originally went in the blendery, we knew that there was going to be a lot of experimentation and we knew that it was going to take several years before we kind of started not arriving at any finality in terms of where we wanted 
the that style of beer to go. But it was going to take several years before we saw things kind of converging on on a flavor and aroma profile that we wanted. And when we first opened Blendery, we were experimenting with different blends of cultures, different types of cultures, different pitching rates, uh, just airborne inoculation versus actual, uh, you know, liquid culture inoculation and kind of seeing what worked. We experimented with different types of barrels, different uh, wort compositions in terms of, you know, what grain are we using in this different mash profiles to create different sugars in the fermentable liquid. We experimented with everything, but we tracked it all fairly scientifically. And then we also made a, a really keen point to keep track of the temperature and humidity in blendery, which we have the ability to control entirely mm -hmm. throughout the year. So we have climate control in blendery where we can bring the entire barrel room down to the low fifties. Um, and we can, we can also bring it up if we want to, to the, uh, the upper seventies. And we have the ability to control the humidity fairly precisely in there, but being in coastal long beach, we found that the humidity was actually fairly consistent throughout the year, but the temperature was definitely something that we, we wanted to control. And we also wanted to figure out how much of a factor is that in shaping how cultures grow and develop, ergo how flavors and aromas develop in the beer. So it was a lot of experimentation with the endless amount of variables in beer, but we made a point to track it scientifically. And we did send, we have sent a lot of stuff off to a lab to quantify what is going on in our beers. And do, do you think you've landed? It's interesting to, to hear you sort of talk about, you know, maybe not the house culture, but you know, how these beers are going to identify. Um, and it sounds similar to your approach to West coast IPA as well. Mm -hmm. Um, do you feel like there is the identity now for, for sure. Okay. Uh, and I started seeing that kind of develop, I want to say about three years in, there was a very specific earthy note that started developing in blenderies house cultures and also the level of acidity versus the level of funk. I think was something that we were chasing uh, differently than a lot of uh, other American breweries that were maybe being influenced and inspired by some of the Belgian breweries. So Blendery was always looking for really deep levels, complex levels of funk. Uh, we found that that was much harder to achieve and that acid was much easier to achieve in and of itself. And uh, I think at this point, Beechwood Blendery beers absolutely have their own identity. And I think they're, they're clearly inspired by some of those Belgian brewing traditions. Um, but you can also identify that kind of uh, that signature earthy note that's in the, in the culture. And one of the, probably one of the biggest compliments we've received um, about Beachwood Blendery beer was when Funk Yeah, uh, our, our three-year yep. uh, spontaneous blend uh, when it got its first gold medal at Great American Beer Festival a few years ago, one of the judges at the the uh, the final table is from Belgium, and he came to us afterwards and and he said, "Hey, you you guys finally did it. You did it. Like this is not just a well brewed, uh, you know, Belgian inspired beer, but I closed my eyes and I thought this beer was from Belgium. You did it." And it, it, for us, it was that Chateau Montalena moment. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, it, it, it's so interesting, right? Because there is so much rooted in tradition in beer and there are so many shoulders to stand on and so many pillars that have been, been, been erected over, over the years um, to get a compliment like that has to feel amazing. Um. Where does the evolution start? Where, you know, if 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you know, are we going to be so far removed from some of those beers or just so well educated and well versed in some of those beers um, that people might be hearkening back to, to the beers that you're making now as what they're trying to achieve? It's possible. I mean, time will tell. I think it depends on the style and certainly consumer demand. 
with um, when it where when it comes to funky sour beer, I think in the next twenty years we'll have an even better scientific understanding of where those flavors and aromas come from. So it might be easier for the average brewery to achieve a product like that. And then when it comes to something like IPA, uh, which is, you know, an inherently uh, a product that depends very heavily on natural ingredients and consistency of natural ingredients, mainly hops, and uh, a product that's inherently delicate, despite its bold flavors and aromas, I think that's something where new hop products and new brewing techniques are going to continue to make a better beer. And it may be in the case of IPA in another 10 years, people will be, you know, reminiscing about how they used to brew with real hops and like, oh yeah, remember we used to brew with hops? Well, we don't have to do that anymore. We've got these amazing extracts that create the same beer or a better beer much easier. So the science is definitely going to guide some of that. So that's interesting. That's that's now the second time I, I think uh, that you've mentioned um you know, hop products or hop like products, um, in the, in this conversation. So, um, are you, are you messing around with oils and extracts and alternatives we, we are, to the, and to we, the traditional, we, we definitely have, and we, we still continue to, to play around with some of those new experimental products. In fact, we have, uh, an experimental West Coast IPA that is coming out next Wednesday. That's my plug for the pub. But um, we have an experimental so IPA. That's the day out. after this comes out. Okay. Exactly. It's uh, timely. Wednesday the second, I think, is when we're tentatively yep. tapping it. But it's called the beer is, is called Inertia Shift, and it has an experimental product in it um, from Yakima Chief Hops. I can't say what that product is. But that's an example <laughs> that if if that's well received and customers like that beer and other brewers try it and say, oh, okay, this is a really cool result. I want that product. Then Yakima Chief will say, hey, look, this product was successful. There's going to be demand for it. This is going to change the way this certain type of beer is made going forward. That's a pretty big evolutionary change. Wait, wait, hang, hang on a second. Are, are you going to tell people on the second what this product is? No. Or you're just going to say this is like... Hops. <laughs> we, we signed one of those things called an NDA. So I can say that it's an experimental product and that we use it, but I, I can't speak to what the product actually is. I'm, I'm beyond intrigued now. I mean, this is, this is the year of Soylent Green. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, we we absolutely have been using a lot of these new products fairly regularly. In fact, at our production brewery uh, for the last two and a half, almost, yeah, three years, really, the bittering charge for all of our pale hoppy beers, it's it's been extract, much the same as Russian River has been using for well over a decade. Yeah. Uh, and that gives us incredibly consistent bittering. It's a product that's pre-measured for us, and it has an incredible shelf life too. In addition, it slightly increases our yield. So as long as there's not a negative flavor and aroma impact, why wouldn't I use that product? I got us back on 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 hops and IPA, and sure. um, you, you've mentioned the legal uh, aspects of it. So I'm not going to keep pushing you on uh, to to break your NDA, <laughs> but consider me uh, uh, incredibly intrigued. Um, back to the blendery, though, real quick. Um, yeah. Advancements in wood, new technologies, uh, old technologies, old traditions. What what have you been messing around with? Well, when it comes to wood, not a ton, because at Blendery, we're really looking for uh, very neutral barrels. We're looking for a medium that is porous, slightly breathable, which wood is slightly breathable, and something that effectively creates surface area for a lot of these cultures to live in and and thrive, and albeit it's a somewhat harsh environment, which is why you get those flavors and aromas that you do. But when it comes to wood, we're not looking for any flavor from the wood, like like we would be with a maybe a bourbon barrel aged stout. 
Okay. And as far as advancements in wood go, I know there are, there's one French barrel maker in particular that has a really, really cool, very, uh, modern technique for toasting the insides of their barrel that's pretty ingenious that i i think is patented and no other no other barrel makers are are doing it or can do it but um that that's something that has much more impact on the wine side than at blendery and we do we do have some punchins at blendery we have a fooder at blendery and those act differently than our used wine barrels, but the used wine barrels are the bulk of what everything is, is fermented and matured in at blendery. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. There's no like experimental hop like product or uh, that's, that's showing up uh, on the barrel side or on the wood side or on the, <laughs> I think the closest thing to that would be um, the aged hops that we use. Yeah. And we have an, an aged top blend that we got from one of our suppliers and it comes to us in really bad shape, which is exactly what we want. And we abuse that product even more by opening the <laughs> bags and, and storing it in the hot attic because we found that super aged, cheesy, stale is all hell. Um, hops are really what shape a lot of flavors and funky beer. I think it's, it's really underestimated and I think um, there's a, a little bit of a demand in amongst American breweries for a, a, a consistent product that can be used in funky sour beer. Um, what's that going to look like eventually? I don't know. I, I think it'll probably still be some type of hop pellet, but um, you know, it, it might be it might be something that can be made out of uh, multiple varietals or maybe there there is some type type of additive or new processing that they could do to it that will maybe make it a more efficient product a more potent product so we can increase our yields not sure but there's a little bit of effort being made on the the hop front when it comes to funky sour beer cool nothing like ipa though that's for sure yeah um I've been asking folks uh, for the last little bit on this show. Um, the The setup is my wife and I uh, were rewatching The Good Place, uh, the television show, and there's the, mm-hmm. a whole concept of being able to walk through a green door, and the green door will take you anywhere at any time uh, with anybody that you want. And so, if such a thing existed on this plane of existence, and we could end this conversation, you could uh, get up from your desk and and walk through a green door into any pub or any brewery. Where would you go? When would you go? I guess, and who would you want to be with? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, and I could think of any number of different fantastic answers that <laughs> would be fun to discuss. But because I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, I would probably want to go back in time with a uh, perhaps a young Ken Grossman and, and Jack McAuliffe to the, the period after which Fritz Maytag had just bought Anchor. I think that would have been a really cool time to be around, to be a fly on the wall, to have tasted that beer yeah. back then when, when Fritz, you know, a very determined entrepreneur saw a lot of potential in a brand that was kind of facing extinction at the time and said, no, 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 no. I'm going to bring this back around and to have tasted that beer maybe in, in some older expressions, especially when the malt was still being malted in San Francisco itself. Right. Um, I think San Francisco in the uh, late sixties and seventies would have been a pretty, <laughs> pretty fantastic place to visit anyway, just historically, there's so much going on. Yeah. So that, that might've been it too. And, uh, you know, Jack McAuliffe, uh, for those who don't know, was the, the founder of new Albion brewing, which is the predecessor to Sierra Nevada that really kind of came in between anchor and Sierra Nevada. Right. And he was a very early pioneer, um, but I, he, he's also a little bit of a mysterious figure <laughs> and I, I've never, I've never had a chance to meet him. I've met his, his daughter, Renee, uh, a few times, and she's absolutely fantastic, but I would, would love to go back and, and talk to somebody like Jack and see what his motivations were and what his inspirations were. 
and you know if you know if if he would do it all over again so yeah. that that's my that's my summary it I, is probably going back in time to when fritz maytag had bought anchor brewing and i'd probably want to take ken grossman and jack mcauliffe with me there, there's probably a uh yeah if, if you time it right uh because do all used to get their malt from anchor Yep. Jack would drive down to the brewery. Yeah. So, you know, you might have been able yeah. to get, you know, at least two out of the time. And then maybe there was a young Grossman taking a tour like he did at uh, at, at New Albion, which helped uh, spur on his idea for, for Sierra Nevada. I, I, I've had the chance to drink with Jack a bunch of times and he's he is a, a real character. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought him up. He, uh, <laughs> he he's he should be reminded now and again of uh, uh, that he existed in his importance to to the overall beer, uh, beer world. And kind of going back to both of the oh, Sierra Nevada and Anchor Brewing, um, I've got some Sierra Nevada pale ale in my fridge right now. And then last week I had Anchor Steam in my fridge. And those are two beers that I, I grew up with. I've always had respect for. And, you know, especially when you have those beers in their sweet spot and it's a good moment. And it's one of those days when the sun is out and your palate is perfect and your, your nose is all opened up. And it's a magical experience every time. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of awestruck by it every time. And I would hope that all other beer drinkers and enthusiasts and fans can get that same experience, whether it's from Sierra Nevada anchor or, or some other longstanding traditional brewery. I think those experiences are important uh, because, you know, to understand where you are and where you're going, you need to understand where you came from. And you try to keep that alive every day when people walk into your places. Absolutely. I think we do um, by brewing traditional styles, by brewing maybe styles that are derivatives of traditional styles, like West Coast IPA is derivative of a traditional style. And then when we do more experimental styles, we try and take influence from what consumers are asking for. And maybe what other breweries are doing, but at the end of the day, the final product needs to discernibly be beer. It can have a kind of a, a twin personality. You could say, "Oh my God, this tastes like this tastes like uh, you know tiramisu," but I can also tell that this this is definitely a beer. It's not a cider. It's not a wine. It's not some you know alternate fermented beverage. It's right. decidedly beer. You're making me want to go have a West Coast IPA now, so I think I will. Um, <laughs> Get on a plane, dude. I know that's really the best way to do it, but I'll, I'm going to just see what I have in the fridge that's sure. sitting next to my desk right sure. now. But thanks for cool. thanks for being on the show this week, and thanks for taking the time. Of course, John. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure and honor. Clear or haze, funky or clean. What's in your glass and inspiring you these days? You can tell me about it. It's John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com if you like email, or you can get with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Be sure to check out beeredge.com for our This Week in Rauk Beer and Defend Pilsner merch, and to follow along on social media at The Beer Edge. And of course, This Week in Rauk Beer is also online. The Facebook group is easy to search, and on Twitter and Instagram, it's at TWRaukBeer. We're able to bring you this show each week, thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you'd like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to sponsor at beeredge.com. And also be sure to check out Stomp Stickers. Stomp is a proud member of the Brewers Association that produces a wide variety of printed brewery products, such as beer labels, keg collars, coasters, beer boxes, and much more. Stomp's website features an easy-to-use design tool, low quantity orders, fast turnaround times, and free domestic shipping. Visit stompstickers.com and use code CRAFTBEER15 for 15% off of your first order. Athletic Brewing Company's innovative process allows them to brew great-tasting craft beer without the alcohol. From IPAs to stouts to gold nails and more, they offer a full selection of beers starting at only 50 calories. Now you can keep your head clear and enjoy the refreshing taste of beer anytime, anywhere. 
Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. New customers can also get 10% off of their entire order with code BEEREDGE10. Limit one per customer. And NZ Hops. It's a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz, or you can find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. A reminder, check out the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. On this show, Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.